Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. This week we're talking with Alan Ladwick about his new book, See You in Orbit. It chronicles the efforts to get regular humans, not just astronauts, into space. You probably heard us talk about those efforts after the Challenger disaster and into the era of commercial space tourism. But the story of civilians in space starts long before that. In this bonus interview for Are We There Yet?, Ladwig takes us back to the start. Well, I kind of started it in the early, uh, kind of mid-1920s, when Robert Goddard was first writing about his spacecraft that could possibly go to the moon. And while it was ridiculed by the New York Times, uh, it was not ridiculed by the public that was already anxious to volunteer. And so for a theoretical rocket, uh, it was amazing to me that so many people wrote to him, hundreds of people wrote to him and to his sponsor, the Smithsonian Institution, and volunteered to fly on his rocket to the moon. And then you, so to me, that's kind of where it's first laid the seeds, what I call the seeds of the dream. And uh, Goddard was actually a little more irritated than pleased with all of that public attention. <laughs> he didn't want to be bothered by all these volunteers. He just wanted to work on rockets. And the Smithsonian helped develop responses to these people and kind of said, well, thank you, but not going to happen for a while. And then you kind of shoot into the early 50s when the Hayden Planetarium sponsored a Conquest for Space lecture by the German historian Willie Ley. And as a publicity stunt, they set up an interplanetary tour reservation booth in the lobby. And the Hayden Planetarium held about 800 people. And this reservation form they handed out, you could sign up, where do you want to go? Saturn, the Moon, Mars, Jupiter, estimated time of departure, 1975. And over the next several years, over 22,000 people around the globe sent in or got copies of that reservation form and sent it in. And so they poured their hearts out on why they wanted to go. And they each received a reservation card with a number on it uh, that they were supposed to bring at time of departure. Then you scoot forward a little more into 1968 when uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, the movie, came out. Mm -hmm. And Pan Am, Pan, Pan American Airways, set up a first moon flights club. And over a three-year period, 93,000 people signed up for that. And again, they received reservation cards with a number on it. When I was the head of the Space Flight Participant Program at NASA in the mid-'80s, People used to send me copies of their Hayden Planetarium card <laughs> or their Pan Am card, and could they trade that in for a flight on the space shuttle? Could they? And if you laid out, <laughs> I was not able to redeem that ticket. Um, but if you lay down the, the letters and correspondence from these people, beginning with Robert Goddard uh, up to the letters I was getting in the mid-'80s, and we got over 10,000 letters from people, uh, it would be hard to determine what year they were written because the motivations were the same. The penmanship was better in the 1920s, but <laughs> the motivations remain the same. And so there's a consistent desire on the part of the general public to want to participate in spaceflight. 
And so I tell the story through the book of, you know, what, how that came about. And, and the one thing that's a little different in the way I approached it, there are stories in the book that will be very familiar to most space advocates and space historians. However, I tried to lay on top of what was actually happening in space with what was being said about space travel at the time. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to look at it through the lens of public interest, which has been around, you know, as you make the argument, for decades uh, that people have wanted to go to space and be an active participant in, in these human exploration programs. Yes, and the motivations remain the same over all these decades. Uh, you know, people wanted to be part of science. They wanted to add meaning to their meaningless lives. They want to start a business. They, they felt they were expendable and this would give them something to do. They wanted to participate in progress. Uh, for some, it was a longing that they felt was part of them. And the way I got into space in 1969 through the Committee for the Future, uh, Barbara Marks Hubbard, who led the committee, uh, believed that space travel would help us achieve a higher level of consciousness and what she called going a loop up the evolutionary spiral and that space would help us see a new way of looking at humanity and make us better people. Mm-hmm. Alan, I am, I am past the Apollo generation and grew up in, in the space shuttle era. Um, so I think for me, the most public program focusing on sending the quote-unquote regular people into space is, is programs like the Teacher in Space program and the Journalist in Space program. Alan, you were kind of responsible for, for getting these, and, and pardon my pun, off the ground, but how did they come to be? Where, where, did, where, did this, where did these ideas come from, and was it a hard sell to get these folks like teachers and journalists to participate in, in, in the programs? It wasn't a hard sell to get the teachers and journalists to, to want to participate. They, they were all wanted to do it. It was a bit of a hard sell to get it approved officially by NASA. And it actually started with NASA in the mid-70s as the shuttles being developed. In the, in the 1976 period, 77, they already started thinking about would it be possible to fly a non-astronaut? Because remember, back in those days, uh, or you might not remember, but initially they talked how the shuttle would fly 60 times a year, Mm -hmm. and it only required three astronauts. There'd be four seats for passengers. And then, of course, we all know that over time, the 60 became 50, became 40, became 30, became 20, All of a sudden, you needed four astronauts, you needed six astronauts, you needed seven astronauts, and there was no room for non-astronauts. But a National Academy of Sciences study group felt that there needed to be more exciting accomplishments on the first, at that time, six planned orbital flight tests. Mm -hmm. And so George Lowe, the deputy administrator, ask a a group to get together and come up with ideas for what would be innovative and interesting to the public for those orbital flight tests. And one of the ideas was to fly a private citizen. And Lowe in particular was kind of big on that idea. And he actually thought about selecting an individual without any kind of competition 
And he was going after Philippe Cousteau, the son of ocean, ocean mm-hmm. explorer Jacques Cousteau. And they thought maybe the Cousteaus could bring to space what they had done for the oceans, to bring public awareness and public excitement. And as kind of a backup, if Philippe wasn't going to do it, maybe Walter Cronkite as okay. a journalist. And it ultimately, the Cousteaus kind of backed off because Lowe was leaving NASA. They were afraid the idea was, was too focused with him. And if he left, the idea would get dropped. So they kind of faded away. And then a, a couple, two different internal study groups were done, one for the Office of Space Flight and one for Public Affairs. And they both kind of had different views on how you should proceed. The Public Affairs folks thought it should be, of course, a journalist. The Office of Space Flight folks came up with what they called a unique personality. And in that, it could have been a, a statesman, an entertainer, a teacher, uh, a politician. They had a whole list of, of possibilities. Mm-hmm. And they finally merged those two groups together. And one thing that was decided was you couldn't just handpick somebody. There had to be some kind of a fair and equal competition. And this was especially true with the journalists because journalist uh, organizations, news organizations, had been writing to NASA for years trying to get one of their science reporters on a space flight. It was actually uh, proposed as early as a Gemini mission where the National Geographic tried to propose sending a National Geographic photojournalist on a Gemini flight at a time when we had only flown about seven or eight uh, human flights. Wow. And can, and can you imagine how the astronauts then would have thought about having a journalist in the shotgun seat of a Gemini? Mission? Right. I'm just thinking of the so, legal department losing their minds at my shop. <laughs> exactly. So uh, ultimately, in the mid 70s, the unique personality and the jur- journalist idea kind of got shelved. Why? Well, because the shuttle was over budget, it was behind schedule, and the last thing the senior management needed to do was focus on flying a civilian. So it got shelved until about 1982 when the new administrator, James M. Beggs, came to town. And after just four shuttle flights, he was being besieged by VIPs and uh, self-appointed people that thought they deserved to fly on a shuttle mission. And he got tired of them asking for meetings and sending them letters. So he turned to the NASA Advisory Council and said, we are without a procedure. How do we go about doing this? Well, number one, should we do it? Number two, is it safe to do it? And number three, why would we do it? So a committee was formed uh, within the uh, NASA Advisory Council. The committee was led by Dr. Daniel Fink. And they went off for a year and studied the concept. And in 1984, they came back with the recommendation, which said, yes, uh, it is appropriate to fly a citizen. We do think it can be safe enough. And the purpose should be for communication. And as a communication technique, they said it should be a broadcast journalist, a written journalist, or a Yeah, a a broadcast communicator, a written communicator, or a teacher communicator. And those were the three recommendations that went forward 
Then an internal NASA group was formed, of which I ended up being the executive secretary for, that considered those three suggestions and ultimately recommended that a teacher go first and that a journalist would go second. But, Alan, as we as we read in the book, um, some other citizen group uh, makes their way onto the shuttle before the teacher and before the journalist. That's Senator Jake Garn and then, at the time, uh, Congressman Bill Nelson. Um, how did that kind of come to be, and, and was there kind of a, a – um, you know, what was the outcome of that? Did that eventually help NASA out politically to have these two um, flying on shuttle? Uh, I never saw any evidence that it helped us all that much politically. It came about because early on in the shuttle development process, in the early shuttle flights, Senator Garn, who was on the science committee on the Senate side, uh, kept saying, when is the chairman of the committee going to get to fly? And he he felt he should go kick the tires. Mm -hmm. And he brought this up in numerous congressional hearings. It would often be one of his opening questions. Uh, And he kept at it. And and to his credit, Administrator Beggs kept saying, well, we're, you know, we're looking at a process. We'll let you know. And the same thing with uh, Congressman Nelson. Around the same time, he would talk up in House hearings and say, when was he going to get to fly? And he wrote about it in his newsletter to his constituents. He would write letters to Beggs. So the committee, or the internal committee of NASA, had recommended that a teacher go first. That was announced by the president in August of 1984. And... uh, then, in, uh, and we announced the, uh, the uh, qualifications and how to, how to go about applying in November of 84. And I was, had a chance to be on the David Letterman show on November 7th, 1984, uh, to talk about the teacher in space program. And uh, that next day, I came home uh, from New York and opened up the Washington Post and on the front page said, Jake Garn's going to fly in the shuttle. And I was completely blindsided because I knew nothing about it. Uh, the Legislative Affairs Office and the Administrator's Office uh, kept it pretty close to the vest. There clearly had been a lot of uh, discussion back and forth because the letter of invitation to Garn and, and three other members of Congress who were on uh, important NASA-related committees. Um, the letter was dated November 7th and answered on November 7th. This is before email, so it was hard copy letters. So I was surprised, and when I asked Jess Moore, who was the head of the shuttle program, about it, uh, you know, that I was shocked because it was starting to sound like he was going to fly before the teacher. And everybody tried to reassure us that, oh, no, no, he won't fly before the teacher. The teacher will still be first. And even Congressman Fuquay, Don Fuquay of, of Florida, was outraged uh, that, the, that the senator might fly before the teacher. Well, as it turned out, he did, in fact, fly before the teacher. He flew in 1985 and uh, did it with uh, abbreviated training, which was later criticized. But he got to go, 
And uh, I'm sure it was a good thing for him. He enjoyed it. But there was a lot of pushback from newspapers. There were editorials that said, you know, a senator shouldn't be elbowing his way in front of the teacher. And then almost at the same time, all of a sudden Nelson gets his assignment. Again, I was told, don't worry, he's not going to fly before the teacher. But in fact, he flew on the mission just before the teacher. And there was a third person that almost got involved in that, and that was the Secretary of the Air Force, Pete Aldridge, who tried to fly as a payload specialist on a DOD flight. Mm-hmm. And he was actually assigned to a mission that was going to fly out of Vandenberg, but of course the Vandenberg launch pad was never completed, and his flight never took place. So there was a lot of controversy uh, with these politicians getting in before the teacher I guess, you know, when you look back historically, what difference does it make? But at the time, it was pretty bruising, especially to the teacher organization, the Council of Chief State School Officers Mm -hmm. that helped us with the selection process. They felt blindsided and almost didn't come to the press conference uh, where we were going to announce the uh, process. That was Alan Ladwig, former manager of NASA's Spaceflight Participant Program, about the prospects of ordinary citizens in space. His book, See You in Orbit, is available on Amazon. And you've been listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne.